All right. Good evening, comrades, and welcome to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Our class tonight is going to be on the 30th anniversary of Black October of 1993. Uh, the comrades that have been here for a while know that last year, uh, at the beginning of October, we had a class on this. Um, but we're starting to reuse some of the old class material for new classes, uh, just to you know, put a little bit less load on our shoulders in terms of what we have to do at the school but also to make sure that our new comrades are getting this information as well. What we're going to be learning today is the events of Black October 1993, including from the eyes of eyewitnesses to the event. We're also going to talk about U.S. and Western support for the coup and the misinforming of Yeltsin regarding the future of NATO. It's very important and very relevant when it comes to our current situation. And also the significance of Black October 1993. And I even included some audio excerpts uh, from Dr. Angelo D'Angelo from last year's class. But we'll have the first section. Here is a uh, video explaining the events of Black October 1993. By the way, this is from Radio Free Europe. I think it's Radio Liberty. Unfortunately, last year we had the RT video on it, but that was since taken down on YouTube. So this was the next best thing we could get. It's got a good explanation of these events, but just keep in mind where it's from when you hear some of the framing. We'll go ahead and watch it, and then we'll go to the slides after that. Russia was in the middle of a constitutional crisis when the president, Boris Yeltsin, ordered the army to shell Moscow's White House, the building housing parliament, on October 4, 1993. At the instigation of defiant lawmakers, Moscow had just witnessed the deadliest street fighting since the revolution of 1917. In the end, the immediate crisis was resolved with the use of military force. After the Soviet Union collapsed in December 1991, Russian President Boris Yeltsin launched a set of radical economic reforms aimed at dismantling the command economy and swiftly creating free market conditions. The parliament, the Supreme Soviet, opposed the quick transformation of the economy. Tensions also grew over the balance of power between the legislative and executive branches. The disagreements escalated on September 21, 1993, when Yeltsin decided to dissolve parliament and call new elections, saying it was necessary to overcome the state crisis. Legislators responded by barricading themselves in the White House. They voted to impeach Yeltsin for violating the Constitution. In the meantime, thousands of people marched in Moscow's streets to support parliament and protest against unpopular reforms. Traffic was blocked, barricades were constructed, and the first clashes between police and anti-Yeltsin protesters erupted. After the demonstrators attacked a local television studio and the mayor's office, Yeltsin declared a state of emergency in the capital. The conflict came to a head on October 4, 1993, when Yeltsin ordered the army to take up positions around the White House. Electricity, water, and telephones were cut off. Yeltsin ordered a military assault. Tanks shelled the building. It took just a few hours before soldiers managed to arrest the leaders of the resistance. A political crisis that had brought the country to the brink of civil war had been diffused. In the end, according to official figures, 187 people died and 437 were wounded in the clashes. Non-governmental sources estimated that up to 2,000 people died during the crisis. Three months later, a new constitution was approved, allowing Yeltsin to create a strong presidency that exists in Russia to this day. All right. From the Russian Communist Workers' Party, the protection of the House of Soviets, 
in the October days of 1993 through the eyes of eyewitnesses. Protection of the House of Soviets in the October days of 1993 through the eyes of eyewitnesses. Yes, those who lived through these days will never forget them. People in groups and singly walking to the House of the Soviets, past the skyscraper in Watstania Square, past garbage containers with the inscriptions, a box for Yeltsin, a box for Chubais, etc., down some long wooden stairs along the yellow autumn leaves. People are crowding on Freedom Square, a lot of multicolored banners. The posters are both pathetic and humorous. Our own vodka lover would not have won votes without Yakunin's beard and without Bonner's mustache. Smoke from the fires around which the defenders of Soviet power are warming themselves. We communists are not deceived. We understood that in reality, only a form remained of Soviet power. In essence, it broke already when the state from a proletarian one became a nationwide one and finally perished after the counter-revolution of 1991. Gathered at the walls of the white building of the late Brezhnev construction, solemnly called the House of Soviets, they defended, in fact, only the idea and symbol of Soviet power. But this was not enough. We understood perfectly well that what was happening in those days was not our last and decisive. It was not for nothing that Vlasov's tricolors hovered over both warring camps. It was a fight between two clans of the bourgeoisie, the liberal comprador and the nationally oriented. By and large, both are worse, but the power of the compradors will lead to much greater suffering for the common people and to greater destruction of the domestic economy. This must be taken into account. And one more consideration, probably the main thing, the people took to the streets. It was not the majority, but a small part of it. But since people came out, and with a generally progressive goal to overthrow the Yeltsinists, it means that the communists should be with them. Familiar faces come to mind. The fiery Boris Gunko, Anatoly Khrushchev, Viktor Anpilov, Vladimir Gusev, Boris Korev. Almost everyone who is familiar with that era knows these people. And who remembers, for example, Ekaterina Pintis, an elderly, she was then about 70, little woman who spent all the cold autumn nights of the siege on the square in front of the House of Soviets. She cut bread and sausage and fed them the then militias. When one of her comrades called her home phone, there were no cell phones then, the shrill voice of the petty bourgeois daughter-in-law was heard in the receiver. How do I know where the devil is on the barricades? Or Mitrofan Poltovskoy, the then secretary of the Gagarin primary organization of the RKRP, a construction worker, a former Afghan officer, Absolutely courageous, absolutely brave, absolutely disinterested. That September, he had severe bronchitis. But after learning about Yeltsin's decree number 1400, Mitya grumbled, and it won't let you get sick, an infection, and with a high temperature went to fight. He was on duty, not in the building of the House of Soviets, but on the street from the side of the embankment, sick in the cold autumn wind. He did not have weapons. The combatants from the RKRP in Labor Russia were not given weapons, although there were weapons in the building. The class essence of the bourgeoisie was also felt here. The besieged Bernice Spatz, the editor of Leninsky put newspaper from Usolye Sibirskoy, so wit wittily shortened the name Bourgeois National Patriots, of their opponents, the Burdams, abbreviation of the same author, were less afraid than those who came them to protect the people, even though it was in the building. 
During the storming of the House of Soviets, Koltovsky miraculously survived. When on October 6th, barely alive from hunger and fatigue, he reached the apartment of his comrades, he did not ask for a sip of water or a piece of bread. He asked for a pencil and paper and began to draw. Here's the House of Soviets. Here's our barricade. So between them, an armored personnel carrier passed and stood. And my friend and I have one captured police baton for two. What was to be done? Getting into a fight is an empty suicide. We had to leave. He made excuses for being alive. How many heroes actually died then? 15,000 or five? This we will probably never know. A column of black smoke, black soot on the upper floors of a white building will forever remain an ominous symbol of the triumph of the bourgeoisie. But what at that moment remained from the Soviet power, the Soviet people did not surrender without a fight. Just as the powerful performances of the left, primarily the RKRP, the PKK, Labor Russia, over the past two years did not give the Yeltsin bourgeoisie clique the opportunity to claim that their counter-revolutionary coup in 1991 was met with universal approval. The voice of protest was clearly audible. The honor of the communists was saved. Black October 1993. Frozen riot police with pewter eyes. Inter-inspirational faces of comrades. Makashov dropping the tricolor from the balcony of the town hall. Trucks and buses with brave men leaving to storm Ostan Kino. An, an old woman in a gray beret whom some guy carefully helped to get into such a bus. Bouquets of scary barbed wire cut into pieces. Bruno's spirals. The roar of tank guns. Black smoke over the black frame of the White House. Those who did not surrender burned in it. Not on their knees, our grief, our pride. Remember, Ivanikov and V. Komanarova. From the editor, burning, shuddering from explosions of shells from tank guns, the House of Soviets will forever remain a symbol of the bloody baptism that Russian capitalism arranged for the working people of our country. The opponents of capitalism were the Soviet people, who gathered at the bourgeois parliament, which was already, in fact, the parliament, which the head of the bourgeois dictatorship, Yeltsin, canceled. But those present were not participants in the dismantling of the two branches of bourgeois power on the question of how and at what pace to carry out capitalist reforms. They were the defenders of Soviet power, the Soviet Union, and the socialist system. It was in this capacity that they rose to fight, and that is precisely why they were terrible to the bourgeois regime, which attacked with such bestial fascist hatred. Bestial fascist hatred, which the Kremlin today condemns, and the Ukrainian Nazis. Glory to the real Soviet people, in spite of all the black forces that fought for the power of the working people to the end. Sometimes sowing separates from seedlings a considerable time, but the seedlings that bring the harvest will still and certainly break through and sprout. To the cause for which our comrades died in Black October, this applies to an absolute extent. All right, and with that, we'll stop for the first round of questions and comments. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, forgive me if it wasn't explained just yet, but can somebody tell me exactly what the factions were? And and who the army sided with? They sided with Yeltsin. Can somebody ex just briefly explain why somehow in a few sentences? Thank you. Yeah, I can go ahead and attempt to. And then if somebody else wants to give it a shot, they can uh, raise their hand. So defending the House of Soviets were, of course, the Russian communists at that point in time. Um, but there were also different forces. I believe some nationalist forces in Russia that were also assisting with the defending of that House of Soviets. 
But yes, the other faction, the aggressor faction, the hostile one, was the Yeltsinite coup plotters, the same faction that, you know, basically foisted the 1991 coup uh, among the country. Um, that's the best answer I can give you. If somebody else wants to give you a better answer, they can, of course, raise their hand. Uh, what was the uh, Yeltsin's decree 1400 again? Um, somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that that decree was dissolving the parliament. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Yeah, I just wanted to say, um, you know, as we we watched that video again, it was from Radio Free Liberty, which is uh, a voice box of the CIA. One thing they they framed the thing at um, the event or the October 1991 as being a uh, a collapse of the Soviet Union, which sort of um, implies that that the Soviet Union couldn't handle itself anymore and just collapsed, when in reality, we need to be sure that we're saying what it actually was, which was a coup, a counter-revolution done by the, you know, by the bourgeoisie and especially by the international bourgeoisie. Reagan, you know, Reagan and uh, Bush Sr., they loved... Um, Yeltsin and uh, Gorbachev, and for this exact reason, because they were going to take down the Soviet Union unilaterally. All right. Thank you, comrade. So a little more. So the section of the holdouts or the people that were labeled as communist hardliners or holdovers from the Soviet Union were actually those, especially among the new bourgeoisie of Russia, that still wanted to actually retain state public ownership, like it is the case today, over the electrical and many of the public utilities, as opposed to Yeltsin, who just wanted to mass privatize or do the economic rapid privatization of all public uh, services. And that new constitution, basically, as said, gave the president pretty much absolute reign over parliament really especially with his further assistance from the cia in rigging the election in 1996 when up against seconds. the general secretary Zayuganov of the communist party of the russian federation all right thank you comrade there's a uh, this ultra leftist uh, belief that um, the USSR was state capitalist. And um, clearly we see when there was a violent action that reached the capital and there was a switch in power from the proletariat to the bourgeoisie, that's when, you know, the former uh, Soviet states, many of them became capitalists. So that destroys that argument from the ultra-left liberal perspective that the USSR was capitalist. Thank you, comrade. I totally agree. And a lot of the ultra-left tends to gloss over the entire counter-revolution and, and USSR simply for the fact that if they got into the you know meat and potatoes of it, it would defeat a lot of their narratives. So thank you. Yeah, I just wanted to say what Yeltsin and his American cronies did. It's called shock therapy. 
that's what they officially call it because uh they privatize everything and it shocks everything i mean it's it speaks for itself it's kind of funny how they call it shock therapy like they're like openly like cartoonishly villainish yeah and that's why they also call it the russian communist workers party had referenced it as the bloody baptism of capitalism because they were just immersed into it you had almost 70 years of socialism in the ussr and then you know within only a few short years they were immersed back into capitalism and we saw how much damage that did so thank you comrade um, yeah, I just wanted to touch on this because this is also a very significant part of the history of the USSR and Russia as it stands today. You know, the Russians and former Soviet people, they call this the crazy 90s, and it definitely was the crazy 90s. You know, all throughout the 15 republics, we saw massive privatization of all heavy industry. A lot of things got sold. Billionaires became billionaires literally overnight. And this was because they had, you know, some type of black market or, you know, like a corruption kind of angle coming to it and everything like this. But, you know, I want to make the point on this that everybody talks, a lot of the ultra left and even the right will say that the Soviet Union basically fell on its own accord and that socialism failed. And that these things were inevitable and everything like this. But, you know, the question we have to ask ourselves is, if these things were inevitable, why did the USA spend billions to push forward these policies and get Clinton into the position that he needed to be with Yeltsin? You know, this is not inevitable. This is external and inside forces working together to tear down the Soviet Union. Everybody likes to portray it as, oh, just the dumb Soviets. They messed up their system and blah, blah, blah. But the reality is there was quite a lot of foreign influence and not just from the Americans, but from Western European capitalists as well. You know, 90 as seconds. Soon as All right. Thank you, comrade. And and yeah, definitely. And there's also we have a class uh, that we did last year that comrades can find on our YouTube where they can find the PowerPoint online about the counter revolution in the USSR, which goes into the sort of Gorbachevites, which, uh, you know, brought about the well first liberalization policies um but then a lot of that led to the actual counter-revolution itself and then black october so and you know prior to gorbachev people like to make it seem now like the soviet union was in a hard financial position and was inevitably going to collapse but you know we have comrades that were in the soviet union in the 70s we've seen that era there was not a bad you know economic problem at that time uh, that led to 1991 and such so on and so forth that was liberal policies and western intrusion that caused that so thank you comrade yeah it was actually good that we used well maybe not good but it was interesting that we used the radio free europe version this time because in the narration to me it almost sounded positive it was like a positive account of yeltsin killing people who were defending the soviet union and it's pretty clear that the Soviet Union would have continued to exist in one form or another, regardless. But the Bella Vesha Accords, which was signed December 8th, 1991, that was the final uh, blow. That was the one that dismembered the Soviet Union, that balkanized it. They balkanized it. And that's interesting, perhaps, maybe not this year, but in the future, maybe we'll do a class on those accords because the Soviet Union would have continued existing. All right. Thank you for that, comrade.
Uh, and with that, I think we'll go ahead and go to the second section of the class now. U.S. support for Black October. The West loves Yeltsin's coup. Western administration for the coup. Western imperialists already having felt victorious from seeing the counter-revolution destroy the Soviet Union two years earlier, were happy to see Yeltsin crack down on the remnants of the Soviets and congratulated Yeltsin for it. President Bill Clinton said, quote, It is clear that the opposition forces started the conflict and President Yeltsin had no other alternative but to try to restore order. The U.S. supported Yeltsin because he is Russia's democratically elected leader. I have no reason to doubt the personal commitment that President Yeltsin made to let the Russian people decide their own future in elections, end quote. Various documents declassified by the National Security Archive, including telephone memorandums between Yeltsin and Clinton and other transcripts of U.S.-Russian dialogue, show the depth of this support. NSA Archive Memorandum so from an- of a Telephone Conversation on September 13th, 1993, between Yeltsin and Clinton. So I'll go ahead and start off with Yeltsin. It goes, good evening, Bill. Hello, Boris. I've just been briefed on your speech tonight and wanted to call you right away to get your personal sense of what this step will mean for you, for the Russian political process and for reform. I want to issue a public statement to state my support for you. But before I do, I wanted to hear from you how this affects your position and the process of reform in Russia. Bill, the Supreme Soviet has totally gone out of control. It no longer supports the reform process. They have become communists. We can no longer put up with that. For that reason, today I signed a decree on elections to a new democratic assembly to take place on December 11th and 12th. In that period, the Supreme Soviet and Congress actions will not have any effect. Everything will be governed by presidential decree. All the democratic forces are supporting me. Are the military and security services with you? Both the military and Ministry of Internal Affairs have come out in support of me. There is no disorder for the time being. There are about 300 people gathered, but they are dispersing. I think there will be no bloodshed. That's good. Your speech comes at an important time here. The Senate will act this week on the $2.5 billion assistance package for Russia and the other states. Secretary Christopher is with the key members of Congress now to underscore our continued support for the bill. Yes, of course. Now the reforms will go faster. That's good. It will also be important for me to be able to tell the U.S. people and the Senate that you intend to pursue the elections in a fully democratic manner that they will be free and fair and that the outcome will be observed by you and all other parties. It will be important to confirm publicly that is what you said and that is what you believe. Absolutely. This will be the case and I thank you for your support. Let me ask you one question that I know the press will ask me today. I have heard that Rutsikoy and Kashbalotov are claiming that they are being denied access to the press. Freedom of expression will be important during the elections. It will be important to be able to say that they proceeded really freely and democratically. Free access to the press is an important part of that. What are the facts from your point of view 
And what is the connection to the election? This is not connected to the elections, and nobody has forbidden them to talk to the press. I have made no such decisions. Thank you. I intend to be in touch with our allies in Europe and Asia to underscore the importance of support for reform in Russia at this critical juncture. I just want to say again that you will have my support and the support of the American people. I will continue to push for the aid package. It will be important if you can confirm to us and to your own people that you are really going to continue the process of reform and that the elections will be free and fair. Thank you for your support. I promise that the elections will be fully carried out in a democratic way without discrimination of any kind. Anybody who wants to take part in this will be able to do so. The reforms will go much faster now than in the past. The Supreme Soviet hindered reforms in the past, and thank you for your support. The Russian people will not forget. I know you need your rest, but before you go, I wanted to ask you, what will the opposition do? The opposition will try not to recognize what has happened, but the people will understand all of this, especially the intelligentsia. We don't want to use force. Everything will take place peacefully. We do not, in any circumstances, want bloodshed. I thought it would be important to talk to you before I spoke to the press because the American people are standing with you and the Russian people. This conversation has helped. If you need to talk to me at any time in the next days, in the next two days, I'll be available any time of the day or night. All the best. Thank you, Bill. Then we should tell the press about our conversation. Yes, I will immediately issue a statement to the press. Good night. Thank you. I embrace you, Bill. And then what we'll do right now is this is just a video, no a commentary with it, of the Black October 1993 of the coup that we're going to watch now just because that telephone memorandum was before this happened. And then once we watch this, we'll hear their reaction and conversation with each other after it happened. Of course, I understood clearly what he's saying, but he was deadly drunk.
человек такой, может быть, это можно назвать какой-то зацикленностью. Но я хорошо понимаю, чем это все закончится. Это все закончится вот такой поминальной свечкой по демократии вообще в России. Прийти к тому, что закрыть, вот, сразу захлопнуть газеты. И так, в общем, монополизировано было уже и телевидение, теперь газеты э, закрыты. Ну, а как вообще говоря, как общество... All right, and now we have the uh, telephone conversation on October 5th, 1993, between Yeltsin and Clinton. Remember, this is immediately after what happened. Uh, Bill, good evening. It's good to hear your voice. Good evening, Boris. I wanted to call you and express my support. I've been following events closely and have tried to support you as much as possible. I know this has been a difficult time for you. I wanted to know how you're doing. Bill, thank you very much for your support, which I knew and felt would be coming. Now that these events are over, we have no more obstacles to Russia's democratic elections and our transition to democracy and a market economy. The fascist organizations that have been active in these events have now been banned. So now I feel that all will be fine. It's too bad that some people were killed, but this is the fault 
of those who were the first to open fire and acted in a provocative way. They brought to Moscow a gang of people from the Transdniester region, the Riga OMON. These were special forces. They had them come here, gave them machine guns and grenade launchers, and had them fire on peaceful civilians. There was no other alternative than to use force against them. This was terrorism and banditry at work. I felt that the people supported me. Now that we have all this behind us, I plan to move forward in a strong way. What will be your timetable for elections? Will you keep to the same schedule you had planned? Yes, the elections will be held December 11th as planned. But I also think that maybe in order to meet the desires expressed by other parties, I will consider holding early elections for the president simultaneously with the parliamentary elections. I'm not sure, but I may end up in the Guinness Book of World Records for standing for election three times in three years. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what I'd do if I had to run for election three times in three years, but you just seem to get stronger and better. Yes, I guess I can't do much about it, and no real rivals to me are visible. My current rating stands at 90%. What is the prevailing attitude among the regional leaders? Can we do something through our age package to send support out to the regions? That would be good. Those regional leaders were supporting the opposition are now changing their support to us. But nonetheless, this kind of regional support would be very useful. I will have my people follow up with yours on that issue. Another question I have for you. How will you decide who can run in the elections after all that's happened? Which papers and press outlets to open again? Will that be a problem for you? There will be no restrictions on the elections except for those who have been charged with crimes, who have incited murder or bodily harm. 39 people have now been killed on our side. What will happen to Rotskoy and Kasblatov and the other leaders that are in custody? The courts, the prosecutors, and an investigation will decide. We will not take part in this. For now, they are in custody and are being held in prison. If the court decides that they are not involved in murders or other crimes, if they issued no orders to shoot to kill, though I'm certain that Rutskoy did give such orders, if they are not guilty, they should be acquitted. Or if they have been found guilty, I could pardon them as long as they resolve to leave public life. In any case, this will all be done in a democratic fashion. Oh, that's good. In closing, I want to express my intention to continue to work on our bilateral relations. Energy Secretary O'Leary was recently in Moscow, and I know other cabinet secretaries are planning visits. Secretary Christopher will be there the third week of October. I assume you want us to press ahead on all these projects. I'm also looking forward to my own visit in January. Yes, Bill. I am very happy for the support you have given. I appreciate the cooperation, and I am looking forward to the visit by you and your wife Hillary in January. Great. I hope you'll be able to get some rest now. I know it has been very hard for you, but you did everything exactly as you had to, and I congratulate you for the way you handled it. Thank you for everything. I embrace you with all my heart. All right. And thank you for the, uh, the Bill Clinton impression, comrade. NATO takes advantage. Yeltsin misinformed on NATO. 
In the talks that followed the events in October, Yeltsin began to bring up the discussion of NATO expansion and Russia's national security concerns. According to the National Security Archive, it was recorded in an October 20th cable that Charge d'Affaires and future ambassador to Russia, James Collins' view, what the Russians hope to hear from you is that NATO is not moving precipitously and that any policy NATO adopts will apply equally to them. Their neurologic approach attitude stems from the fear that they will end up on the wrong side of a new division of Europe. Therefore, Colin counsels Christopher to make sure the Russians know that the U.S. is actively promoting Russia's complete reintegration into the family of Western states. On October 22nd, Secretary of State Warren Christopher meets with Yeltsin and reveals to him Clinton's proposal for a partnership for peace, which he leads Yeltsin to believe is an alternative to the expansion. All right. And just over on the side, you can see a map in the orange partnership for peace members. So you have Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, a lot of the former Soviet states and European NATO members there in the blue. And in the green are all these present NATO members, which were formerly partnership for peace members. So obviously it wasn't an alternative for NATO expansion. Um, it was just a cover to go ahead and tell Yeltsin to pacify him. NSA Archive Secretary Christopher's meeting with President Yeltsin on October 5th, 1993. 19. Secretary Christopher then turned to his third subject, which he noted would be more substantive. He said that the President Clinton particularly wanted him to talk with you about President Yeltsin's recent letter on NATO. With a great deal of care and study, President Clinton decided on what recommendation to make to the NATO summit in January. In this respect, your letter came at exactly the right time, and it played a decisive role in President Clinton's consideration. There could be no recommendation to ignore or exclude Russia from full participation in the future security of Europe. As a result of our study, a partnership for peace would be recommended to the NATO summit, which would be open to all members of the NACC, including all European and NIS states. There would be no effort to exclude anyone, and there would be no steps taken at this time to push anyone ahead of others. 20. President Yeltsin jumped in at this point and asked if he understood correctly that all countries in CEE and the NIS would, therefore, be on an equal footing, and there would be a partnership and not a membership. Secretary Christopher replied, yes, that is the case. There would not even be an associate status. Yeltsin replied, this is a brilliant idea. It is a stroke of genius. All right. We'll stop for our second round of questions and comments. Um, so I'll take the hands that are up. Yeah, I just wanted to mention when they dissolved the parliament and they made the vice president Ruskoy the president. Ruskoy is a Ukrainian, by the way. So I just thought that was interesting. Thank you for that, comrade. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to... Um talk about this period and then going forward up until, you know, the present day, you know, Russia already knew, you know, not Yeltsin in particular, but they already knew that this was coming and they've been knowing this for quite some time. And I, I think a pivotal point from changing from that Russia to the Russia that we have now is Putin's speech at a 2007 Munich security conference. I urge everyone here to watch it. It's really good. About 45 minutes. But it talks about the failures of this time, this time period that we're talking about tonight and how this literally set up the blueprint, the the floor plan, if you want to call it, for NATO expansion into the east. But, yeah. Thank you, comrade. And, and, you know, I'll just go ahead and expand on that with some historical context. This time with Yeltsin wasn't the first time 
that they had went to Russian or Soviet leaders uh, trying to, you know, misinform or misdirect them on the direction of NATO. They also came and made a promise to Gorbachev that uh, NATO wouldn't expand any, you know, eastward if Germany reunified 1990. So they swindled Gorbachev, they swindled Yeltsin. And then, of course, when Putin comes into the gambit, actually on January 1st, 2000, when Yeltsin resigned, uh, you know, he sees through this. And at some point, yeah, like Comrade said, in 2006, and even before then, uh, he began to basically strengthen his side, stand up against the NATO expansion, and prepare for what was coming ahead. And so I think that that definitely shows a difference between uh, Yeltsin and Putin. And we might discuss that a little bit more later in the class. Their indictment, Boris Yeltsin, the so-called Democrat, especially during the 1996 elections, if Zayuganov and the CPRF were to actually win, President Boris Yeltsin would have just wanted to, with intent, or wanted to ban the Communist Party, uh, but was his advisors backed him out of doing it and even made the threatening intent that there would be a civil war if Zayuganov were to win. Further on that, the trade unions were outright banned from political activity, and Yeltsin further incited his elite troops to further attack anyone who were communists and or social democrats in public, and independent political members and or journalists were assassinated during the period. All right. Thank you for that, comrade. Yeah, and I know you were trying to be trying to explain something, but is it fair to even categorize Yeltsin's involvement as being swindled? He really seemed like he didn't care. He kind of betrayed the entire Russian nation in the Soviet Union and um, the Russian people all across the former Soviet Union. But, you know, what was his ties with the Clintons and I would say any other forces that wanted to create this uh, disaster? So to be honest, I don't have a whole lot of information when it comes to, you know, Yeltsin's relationships with Western leaders or with the Clintons uh, that caused him, like you said, uh, to basically betray Russia as a nation. Um, but one thing that I can say is that Yeltsin definitely seemed like a, a leader that could be easily manipulated or tricked into supporting something like that. Like you saw in the video and like is famous about Yeltsin. He was constantly a drunk uh, everywhere he was at to the point to where he couldn't even function in his job. Uh, it might've played a role in his resignation on December 31st, 1999. But if anybody has any information on, you know, his ties to Western leaders preceding that event, they can raise their hand. I hope we get an answer to that question. Um, you know, it's interesting as we go through this, you know, with the Leninist theory, there's a two-stage revolution, first the democratic one and then the social revolution. In this, it kind of seemed like the mirror image of that, the first the social counter-revolution where the economic policy turned to capitalism and then followed by the uh, anti-democratic counter-revolution. I just thought that was kind of interesting how that played out. 
the anti-democratic counter-revolution didn't completely, wasn't completed because uh, the national bourgeoisie was able to take over and stop it from becoming complete neoliberal puppet of the U.S. But yeah, I just thought that was kind of an interesting uh, thing from this. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for that observation, comrade. Hey, comrade. Um, so I just have a quick question uh, regarding this. So the military being, I guess, uh, loyal to Yeltsin in this situation, was this wide? Was there pre-movement uh, of troops before this? Um, further, when it comes to demographics as to who supported what, um, was it generally younger people that, that supported Yeltsin in this? Uh, like, how did this end up working and how did they succeed? Because I do know from other coups uh, across the globe, generally it's just one or two uh, local uh, units, whether it be a brigade or whatever. How did that work out with this and, and how did it avoid from spreading across the nation? Yeah, so I forget the tank division itself that was involved in shooting the um, White House, I believe was involved at some point in some of the 1991 crackdowns against uh, Soviets in different parts. Um, and it also does seem like younger soldiers were definitely the ones to line up more behind Yeltsin. There was a, a lot of the younger people in Russia at that time, unfortunately, um, were kind of deluded by all these uh, Western dreams of, of different things that they could get and different luxuries. They wanted to be like the United States, or at least that's what they were getting pushed on them. So a lot of young soldiers might have fell into that as well. In terms of the specific, you know, factions that lined up behind Yeltsin and why they did and the scale of it, that's another question that I don't really have the answer for. But again, if anybody here has a better explanation for that, feel free to raise your hand. Yeah, what is uh, Boris Yeltsin's like reputation in Russia and the former Soviet Union today? Is it like positive? Is he despised or is he just like forgotten? From what I've seen, it seems that typically he's thought of shamefully in Russia. I can't think of a large force that's really in Russia today going, oh, we we need to go back to the times of Yeltsin. We need to go back to the times of the 90s. I don't think anybody's scratching nostalgically for the 90s in Russia. Um, but there was an article that I did see. I think it was sent to me last year when I was making this class, and I didn't include it. But it was from TRT World or something like that. That was like why Russians prefer to forget about the 1993 crisis. So it might be a thing of trying to just forget that it even happened. But of course, somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, from what I've read, uh, the view of Yeltsin is pretty much unfavorable in Russia. You know, and there is some people who definitely like that kind of stuff. We know that these people are usually kind of ideologically opposed to us, um, so that makes sense. But to respond, um, you know, we see that the two names that are brought up in this time period is Gorbachev and Yeltsin. You know, Gorbachev being a traitor in the Soviet period and Yeltsin being a traitor in the Russian Federation period. But a name that is seldom mentioned that we really need to talk about is like the ideological forefather of this reform movement in the Soviet Union is Andropov. He was the general secretary right before Gorbachev, and he really set into motion the things that Gorbachev eventually did. He wasn't the general secretary for long enough to get all of his kind of policy put through, and it was definitely Gorbachev who inherited that and 
put it through. Thank you, comrade. I did not know about that. Yeah, it was sort of answered. I was going to say in this period, black and white, who's worse, like Yeltsin or uh, Gorbachev? But it might be too broad of a question. Yeah, I mean, it gets down to, is it the person that betrayed the Soviet experiment completely? Or is it the person, the capitalists that did what capitalists do? But yeah, I, I think that that's, yeah, it's definitely a valuable question to think about. You know, during Stalin's, like during that period, during his administration, socialism was uh, defended against outside invasion, you know, um, some of the deadliest battles in history. Uh, meanwhile, Gorbachev was making mistakes in uh, Afghanistan, if I'm not mistaken, um, and all the way into the capital. So um, the defense of the proletarian dictatorship was very important. Thank you for that, comrade. And I definitely agree. You know, Gorbachev cut and ran in Afghanistan when Brezhnev was defending the revolution that happened there by the request of the People's Republic of Afghanistan, rather. Um, so thank you, comrade. I'm enjoying the classes so far. This is my first one, actually. And uh, I've been uh, missing in this uh, the context, the political context of the Soviet Union in the 90s. Uh, it's uh, very much uh, hard to find in uh, online uh, uh, Marxist classes. Um, usually they focus on other uh, topics. But yeah, this is uh, very uh, important to, to uh, go back uh, in time and see uh, how it really happened. It wasn't a, a collapse. Um, it was a, simply a coup d'etat through U.S. meddling. And uh, the U.S. Uh, always says that... Uh, Russia is uh, meddling in our election. So, you know, a complete uh, projection. Um, you know, it's uh, they repeat the same um, uh, tactics and military operations, uh, having Victoria Newland uh, meddling in, uh, in Ukraine and uh, other uh, parts of the world. Um, and they're just uh, doing it. And this is like the beginning steps of them uh, doing so back in the 90s. Thank you, comrade. And yeah, definitely, we need to go ahead and understand this. And we did this class not to like demonize the Russian Federation or anything. You know, obviously, it has its own nuanced history. But we do need to understand what happened in Russia in the 1990s. And you know, it's often said by the capitalists, oh, well, history ended after 1991. Um, but I was born in 2001. And I wasn't born after history. Uh, it's still going. So that's why we go ahead and teach it. Um, so we'll go to the last section of tonight, which is the significance of Black October. Tragedy for communists, opportunity for imperialists. Black October of 1993 showcased the worst violence against communists following the 1991 counter-revolution. It remains a solemn memory in the minds of Russian communists. For the Western imperialists, it was great to see communists facing this, and it was an opportunity to swindle and exploit the Yeltsin government, who it quickly became to the fond praise of the following event. Michael Parenti said of this event in his 1997 book, Black Shirts and Reds. In late 1993, facing strong popular resistance to his harsh free market policies, Yeltsin went further. He forcefully disbanded the Russian parliament and every other elected representative body in the country, including municipal and regional councils. He abolished Russia's constitutional court and launched an armed attack upon the parliament building, killing an estimated 2,000 resistors and demonstrators. Thousands more were jailed without charges or trial, and hundreds of elected officials were placed under investigation. 
Yeltsin banned the labor unions from all political activities, suppressed dozens of publications, exercised monopoly control over all broadcast media, and permanently outlawed 15 political parties, unilaterally scrapped the Constitution, and presented the public with a new one that gave the president near absolute power over policy, while reducing the democratically elected parliament to virtual impotence. For these crimes, he was hailed as a defender of democracy by U.S. leaders and media. All right, thank you. And we're going to listen to two clips from last year's class. These are from Comrade General Secretary Angelo D'Angelo. Uh, just a few things that I thought were really important that he said last year that I think that we should go ahead and hear again. So the first one is, they were us, we are them. Comrades, make no mistake. The people that were murdered in the building, they died by fire, majority of them. These are us, we are them. We could have been there. I could have been there if I had stayed in the Soviet Union. I would have been in that building. This would have been us. So don't think that there's a separation between the murdered communists that were in that building and us. It is us. And let me tell you who was in that building. I watched it all. CNN had it continuously. Every inch of fighting in the streets. CNN had the, a woman there from Iran who was new. She has her own show now on CNN. Can't remember her name. But that was her premiere when she started reporting on that event. I'm poor. That was her name, I think. Um, and she was just starting then. Just starting. What I thought was interesting was that everybody that came to the building, old, old people and young, young people, priests, priests of the church, these were people who were happy with Soviet life. They wanted to preserve Soviet life. That's why they were there, very nice. simply. I wanted to mention that. There were all types of people who wanted to preserve Soviet way of life. Those that wanted to destroy it, wanted to end Soviet way of life. And that's why Clinton put his hand around Yeltsin and took a picture and said, you're doing a good job. This was Hillary Clinton's husband. Hillary Clinton, who recently ran for office, who the so-called communists in the CPUSA supported. Remember Come that, in. they supported her. So let's not forget our history. Thank you. All right, and then we've got another clip from that class which relates this whole thing to Ukraine in 2022. A lot of the younger people don't know about what happened. I, I lived through this when this happened in 1993. And it was very traumatic for many of us communists. It was very traumatic. However, we set up the US Friends of Soviet People in 1993. Um, that organization exists till today and it works closely with the PCUSA uh, in solidarity with the communists that are in the former Soviet Union and those who wanna bring back the Soviet Union as a socialist state. What's going on right now in the Ukraine is indicative of all that. I want everyone to follow the Ukraine and follow with the communists in, in the former Soviet Union, uh, in Russia and the Ukraine. Look at their positions and we follow their positions, which is, this is an anti-fascist struggle. What's going on now 
NATO is a continuation of the Fourth Reich. You heard about the Third Reich? This is the Fourth Reich. That's exactly what it is. All these countries, 15, 16 countries trying to dismember, they're only doing that. Why do you think they're doing it only in Russia? Because the communist movement in Russia is alive. You know that's the second biggest party is the communist party. And if it wasn't for the oligarchs and their control of the mass media, the communists would be in power in Russia right now. And the capitalists know this, and that's why they're opposed to what's going on in the Ukraine. And that's why they're supporting this guy Zelensky, who was a nobody five years ago. He was a nobody. Why are they giving him billions of dollars? Billions. Why? Because they know more about what's going on than even some of the people on the left in the communist movement. They have no idea. They think this is war one against imperialism. No, it has nothing to do with one imperialism against the other. It has to do with the Fourth Reich. That's what NATO is. Everything Hitler tried to do, they're trying to see. All right. And sorry that that cut off uh, a little early, but we'll have the uh, third round of questions and comments, and then we'll do our wrap up for tonight. Yeah. Earlier in the class, uh, somebody mentioned or they asked about you know, how Yeltsin is viewed today. And I remembered, at least from what I'd read before, that he's pretty much universally disliked, if not hated, in Russia. Maybe not universally, but pretty significantly. And so I looked online. There's this website called Russia Votes, and it looks like it has a source of the nationwide BCIOM survey. Um, just to give you some numbers. Question four, it says, in historical perspective, do you think the Yeltsin epoch brought more good or more bad to Russia? There are 59% that said more bad compared to 19% who said more good. So three times as many people said it was bad than that was good. And then in question five, what were your feelings when Yeltsin resigned? He had 51% say satisfaction, 27% say surprise, 11% said delight compared to 4% who said regret and 1% who said indignation. So it gives you a little bit of a perspective of the balance uh, nowadays. That's it. Thanks. Thank you. And I imagine that the leaders that have came since then have at least a little bit higher appreciation from the Russian people than Yeltsin. Putin and Medvedev might not be perfect people in the world, uh, but they're no Yeltsinites. Uh, yeah. So earlier I, I brought up the... Uh, the analogy to the two-stage revolution and two-stage counter-revolution. I, I just wanted to relate it to today. You know, what's going on in Russia, even though um, we heard a good um, commentary from Comrade Angelo just a little while ago, but I something that also gets, um, you know, uh, ignored a little bit is that you know, as I said before, the U.S. and the West did not succeed in completely uh, turning uh, Russia into a neo-colony. Uh, under Putin, uh, when he was inaugurated in 2000, he reversed a lot of uh, what was going on. So what today is happening is that the U.S. and the West and they've admitted that their plan is to, they call it decolonize Russia. What they mean is balkanize what they really are setting out to do is completing that counter-revolution and turning Russia into a neo-colony. Thank you for that, comrade. Yeah, 
uh, wanted to kind of expand upon what I was saying earlier too. So the period from 1993 to about 2005, 2006, we can still view Putin in an unfavorable light. Um, there was a lot of things that he did that were counterintuitive to the Russian people and to the Russian economy. But again, with that 2007 conference really was like the, I guess, the straw that broke the camel's back. Because in 2008, he created Gazprom, which is the state-owned distributor of gas, natural gas, and other gas. But we have to look at this and say, like Comrade Angelo always says too, there are times when people are good and there are times when those same people are bad. And Putin pre-2005 was not an ally of us here in the communist movement. He voted to put sanctions on North Korea. He did nothing in 2003 when the United States invaded Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, he was not a team player or a world player at that point. But after 2007, he put Russia in the driver's seat, which put him in a better position now internationally than in the past. But yeah. Yeah. And just let me expand real quick upon what Putin did in, in his early you know, time, even though this class is on Black October 1993, I still think it's important. So, of course, Putin comes into power as the acting president uh, of the Russian Federation on January 1st, 2000. So Y2K, you know, happens. Oh, the world's supposed to end, but it didn't end. Um, but Putin comes into uh, power. And then in 2001, of course, um, by the time he's elected as president, uh, 9-11 happens in the United States. Um, It's the only time in history Article 5 actually gets invoked by NATO and all of these countries uh, go to war in Afghanistan against al-Qaeda. Putin and the Russian Federation actually go in alongside them. Putin's actually one of the first world leaders to reach out to President Bush after that event, basically give his you know sorrow for that, even commissioned a statue that's still in New York, I believe, called the Teardrop Statue for 9-11. And so he was really trying to still foster that relationship with the West and was still trying to uh, get some promises about NATO expansion uh, early in his administration. Then 2003 comes along. That's the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Um, He doesn't agree. He doesn't go in with them because it has nothing to do with 9-11. You're going for Saddam Hussein. This is just an imperialist opportunity. So he refused to participate in that. Um, and the United States took no, you know, time to, uh, go ahead and, uh, say that he was backing Saddam Hussein and that Russian weapons were found in Iraq. And there was a whole bunch of stuff, uh, early on in the days of that invasion where they basically tried to claim that Russia was behind Iraq. And then from that point on, the relations just soured off to the point to where, yeah, when he has his, uh, 2007 Munich conference speech, you know, it's pretty much regarded as the split uh, between him uh, and the West. And I don't know necessarily Putin's personal intentions when it came to working with the West. If he was trying to just get more favorable conditions for his country or if he was really trying to 96. become part of them, I don't know. Um, but I think that what the comrade said is right. There's definitely a difference between early Putin administration and what happened after 2007. And an interesting thing, too, real quick. Uh, that I just wanted to add about Putin is he left the Russian military in 1991 because he was angered at what was happening with the counter-revolution. He wasn't in public service again until 1997, I believe. 
and he said in a couple of different speeches that he wasn't supportive of Black October 93. So I just wanted to add that in there for the historical context. Yeah, thank you. Uh, one thing to remember with Putin, uh, it was actually early on after he took control of Russia that he tried to bring Russia into NATO. And at that point, they pushed him away. So they, they essentially buried their own grave at this point. Thank you, comrade. All right. So the time is about 9.25 Eastern. Thank you for all of your different questions and comments tonight. I think it was a really good class, just like it was last year. But of course, today was the 30th anniversary of that. So we had to make sure that we got it in. Uh, and, and also, since we were able to reuse the class from last year, we were able to reuse some of that class audio and uh, have some of Comrade General Secretary's comments included. So we'll go ahead and end off tonight's class uh, with the same uh, song that we started with, our very beloved national anthem of the USSR. Uh, this is a version from 1984. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information or to join our free classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube, listen to our streams on Spotify, and chat with us on Reddit. <laughs>